the main factors affecting the lives of all children and young people now in school are environmental degradation, global warming, and rampant inequality. And yet the schools are paying little attention to that reality. Welcome to Climate Check, stories and solutions for fighting climate change. We are part of 350 Brooklyn, an organization that strives to counter the climate crisis through local action. We work towards a world that is just, equitable, and sustainable, and where all beings can thrive. I'm your host, Eva Dean, she, her, a Brooklyn-based choreographer and climate activist. On today's episode, we're discussing climate education. Our guest is Tom Roderick, the author of the new book, Teach for Climate Justice, a vision for transforming education, published by Harvard Education Press. Tom is a teacher, writer, and activist who retired in 2019 after 36 years as founding director of Morningside Center for Teaching Social Responsibility. Hi, Tom. I am so happy you're here today to talk about your book, Teach for Climate Justice. Everyone's in for a treat. If you have children in your life and you want to gain insights on how we can support them in their future with this climate crisis. So welcome. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that uh, 350 Brooklyn has climate check. <laughs> Would you introduce yourself with your pronouns? Tom Roderick, he, him, his. You spent several decades teaching at Morningside Center for Teaching Social Responsibility. Can you tell us what the center does and how that work led you to your work in climate education issues? Morningside Center was founded in 1982 by educators concerned about the danger of nuclear war. And at that time, Ronald Reagan was president, and he was kind of escalating the arms race with the Soviet Union, and it became something that was in the news. You would take a cab ride, cab drivers would be talking about it, and so on. And various organizations popped up at that time. One of them was Educators for Social Responsibility. And I had worked for 10 years in Harlem and East Harlem. I got involved in education through the Civil Rights Movement. And I realized that all the wonderful work we have done to build community in schools, in other places, would be for naught if we had a nuclear war. So I was one of the founding members of Educators for Social Responsibility in New York City, which then changed its name and became Morningside Center about 10 years ago. I see. In my mind, segueing from this nuclear crisis and from the strife of the civil rights movement, that segueing into our current climate crisis, which is, as we all know, one of the biggest threats to future generations, and we're in it now. So the work is very powerful, Tom. 
I did delve into your book, and there's such beautiful insights and language in it. And I'd like to know, why did you title your book, Teach for Climate Justice, A Vision for Transforming Education? I titled the book that way because I felt that the main factors affecting the lives and shaping the lives of all children and young people now in school and for the foreseeable future are environmental degradation, global warming, and rampant inequality. And yet the schools are paying little attention to that reality. When I retired from Morningside Center about four and a half years ago, I decided I wanted to work my way into the climate movement and maybe share something of what we learned during our years at Morningside Center of educating for social responsibility and felt that I had a contribution to make in providing a vision of what radical transformative climate justice education needs to be and to provide a path forward to that vision. At Morningside Center, you know, we started out doing what we called nuclear age education. And then that turned into teaching young people the skills of peacemaking so that you wouldn't need a nuclear war. You could resolve conflicts creatively and nonviolently, right? And that evolved into social emotional learning and our racial equity work. I'd love to hear more about social and emotional learning. During my years at Morningside Center, we became a leader in partnering with schools to implement research-based social-emotional learning programs. In our conflict resolution and peacemaking work, we had been doing social-emotional learning all along. But it became popular when Daniel Goldman wrote his book, Emotional Intelligence. And we began calling our work social-emotional learning. And it's basically about young people learning skills in understanding and managing feelings, in listening, in being assertive, and resolving conflict creatively. And that's an essential foundation for climate education. It's very important that young people have the skills to work with others well, because that's the only way we're going to address the climate crisis, working well with others, right? and that they have skills in understanding and managing feelings, which the climate crisis brings up big time. So the social-emotional learning, I'd like to hear more about what you mean by research-based. Social-emotional learning is a skill. Like anything else, it takes practice. It takes learning concepts. I use the acronym RISE. The instruction needs to be regular. It needs to be interactive. It needs to be skills-based, and it needs to be explicit. And a number of major scientific studies show that our work in developing curricula actually 
changes the way young people relate to each other, the ways they feel about school and their school performance. That's what I mean by research-based social-emotional learning. In order to practice, in order to develop our social-emotional learning mm -hmm. muscle, I'll call it, yes. in your book, you talk about how we need brave spaces. Not mm -hmm. safe spaces, but brave mm -hmm. spaces. Can mm -hmm. you talk about the importance of developing brave spaces? Yeah, we advocate for creating brave spaces because we can't always guarantee that a space is going to be safe for everybody, especially if we're willing in the space to take some risks, to try some things. You may make a mistake. That may not feel great or safe, but it's important to have spaces where people feel comfortable in sharing what's really on their minds. One of the things that really speaks to me as a person who has lots of young children in my life is the chapter that talks about the need to bring children into nature. Mm. And that's the beginning of fostering love for the climate. Can you speak more about why it's so important at a very early age that we go out into nature with children and feel the wonder mm -hmm. of life mm -hmm. on this planet? Rachel Carson said that to develop a love for nature and children, it's very important that they have an adult whether it's a teacher or a parent or the grandparent or whatever, to get children out into nature. There are basically four dimensions of that process, which I call make it personal, make it local, cultivate environmental stewardship, and act for climate justice. Make it personal is about having animals in the classroom, especially for young children that they can take care of and learn to love. It's about going into nature and taking the time to feel the connection, the wonder of nature, and to do that in local spaces close to home and even in urban areas. You know, there's like at the end of my block in New York City, there's a community garden that people in the neighborhood create. And I go there with my grandchild, and we see the flowers, the tomatoes. He likes to get out a little digging tool, and it gives him a chance to enjoy nature in that way. And he loves going there. Tom, can you tell us how it is that we go from taking children out into nature early so that they can feel a love for nature and a connectedness with nature to your idea that you introduce about radical transformative vision of education for climate. A lot of people think that education about the climate is for older young people and adults, but my vision of radical transformative climate education 
is for pre-K to 12. And at all ages, there are many appropriate learning activities and experiences that young people can have. We're talking about ecology. We're talking about how all life is dependent on life. <laughs> and that we're not some force up here that's dominant. We're part of the picture and we need to all be working together with all living things if, if we're going to sustain life on this planet. Early on in the book, you don't talk about climate activism. You talk right about climate justice. It's climate justice work that we're doing, which there is a real pathway in your book that leads to radical transformation so that we can have restorative practices that help us to heal and restore some balance with climate justice with black and brown people who are disproportionately exposed to pollution where they live. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to me that you talk about climate justice, not just climate crisis or climate change. It's always with justice, climate justice. We can't separate it. That, that's right. I mean, the, uh, around the world, we're not just talking about New York City or the United States. Around the world, the people who have been least responsible for creating the climate crisis now stand first in line to bear the consequences of it. And in our country, black and brown people, low-income people are most likely to be living in areas where the air is not great to breathe, and the water is not safe to drink, right? And in our country, for everybody, there's a huge inequality. 40 million people live in poverty. 87 million people lack health insurance and have to choose between eating and going to the doctor, you know, that kind of thing. So the fight to save the climate and the fight for justice are the same fight, and we need everybody together working toward that goal. And it needs to start for young people. If we're, we're talking about a vision of radical, transformative climate justice education, it needs to start in the classroom. It can't be something that they start attending to in high school or whatever. They need to experience a community where people are treated with respect, an equitable community where people listen to each other and speak and are heard, and that they are part of creating that community. That's why building the beloved community is the foundation for climate justice education. We've talked through examples and through your vision that you have in this book about how teachers and parents can support students in taking action for the climate crisis. Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of the action on climate crisis, age appropriateness, when and how can we start to take action with our youth? on the climate mm -hmm. crisis? We start in pre-K, right? 
and in different forms it extends through 12th grade. It's great to learn about things, but real learning comes when you try to apply what you're learning to real life. At, at pre-K that involves taking care of some animals in the classroom, right? Elementary school, it can involve learning about the pollination and doing things to take care of the bees. <laughs> for, for middle and high school students, just taking off on their own <laughs> to organize for the 2019 September uh, climate march in the city and how exhilarating that was for them. It takes different forms at different ages, but it's part of carrying out active hope. And I'd like to say a little bit more about that. Active hope is not a feeling. It's not wishful thinking. It's not something you have. It's something you do. You, you envision what you hope for. You discern how you can best contribute to bringing that about. And then you roll up your sleeves and get to work. In a sense, my writing the book was an exercise in active hope. When I retired from Morningside Center, wanted to work my way into the climate movement, and I thought, well, I've been an educator uh, all my life. Let me try to envision what education really needs to be in this time of climate justice crisis. <laughs> so I thought, well, let me look at the state of the schools and sort of realize that, gee, the schools are not paying much attention to this. There are exceptions. For instance, New Jersey has helped integrate climate education into the standards. These are your words. Go forth with heart, joy, and a fighting spirit. How can our listeners develop their social-emotional learning, create brave spaces? What resources are out there to help us to join forces with children and all living beings in the mm -hmm. fight for climate justice? Well, first of all, there's the book. <laughs> I would say, for starters, Read the book and ideally read it with some other people. Like if you're an educator, maybe get some other colleagues in your school to join you in having a book discussion group. And I'll be putting up a website soon, and on the website will be a discussion guide for the book. What I'm hoping for the book is that people will learn from it, that they will argue with it, that they'll feel inspired by it, and that readers will use it to discern how they most want to contribute to achieving climate justice. There are some organizations, of course, that can help you. You should become a member of 350 Brooklyn, of course. <laughs> and there's a great organization in New York City, in New York State, called the Climate Resilience Education Task Force, which is a network of educators and students who are 
advocating for and practicing climate education in the schools. And there's the organization I led for many years and retired from, Morningside Center for Teaching Social Responsibility, that has a great website called teachablemoment.org with lessons on topical issues in the news, including the climate. For our listeners, we will have all of the rich information that Tom just gave on our website, climatecheck.fm. Tom, this has been a deep dive. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we've missed? Mm -hmm. I want to say a little bit more about active hope. Active hope is the core of my vision for education for grades pre-K to 12. Young people, you know, they need to develop their social-emotional learning skills. They need to get out into nature. They need to understand by the time they finish school what is our situation, how did we get here, and what do we need to do. They need to look at the many living visions that exist of what the future could be. And above all, they need the experience of envisioning a positive future and discerning how they could help and then getting to work doing it. And that starts right in the beginning in social-emotional learning with kids envisioning what they want their classroom to be and then creating uh, community agreements and learning skills and practices to help that happen. Active hope is not something you have, it's something you do. I see that as the core of radical, transformative climate justice education. The piece about going forth with heart, joy, and a fighting spirit, I acknowledge that it's really tough for educators and schools these days. You know, we've had budget cuts, we've had the pandemic, we've had the obsession with standardized tests that limit what teacher can teach. We've had the attacks on academic freedom from organizations like Moms for Liberty. <laughs> I'm not underestimating the challenge that educators face. And so we not only need to have a vision of where we're going and begin to implement that in our classrooms, but we need to organize in the best sense of that word, which is forming relationships, connecting with each other, listen to each other's concerns, and developing solidarity for giving kids at this critical time in human history a great education that includes at its core education for climate justice. It's going to be a fight, but it can be a joyous <laughs> fight and one in, in which we link arms with others to make a difference. Tom, I want to thank you for being here today, for exercising your active hope <laughs> by writing Teach for Climate Justice, a vision for transforming education. I find it inspirational. Wonderful. <laughs> That's what I hoped for. And I'm going to check out these resources that you talk about. And I'm so happy to learn that on your website, you're going to have a discussion guide. 
Yes, also the website has social-emotional learning activities. It has resources for teachers that are included in the book, but an annotated versions of those resources. And my hope with the website is to build a network of educators inspired by the book who will want to stay in touch with each other and contribute to the lessons, the stories, the experiences, and the ideas that the book introduces. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. <laughs> Thank you. An honor for me, too. <laughs> Thank you. That's it for this episode of Climate Check, Stories and Solutions. Thanks for listening. To subscribe, go to climatecheck.fm. Climate Check is a production of 350 Brooklyn in Brooklyn, New York. Stay up to date with our releases by following 350 Brooklyn on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Our production team is Alyssa Kropp, Barbara Schroeder, Bryn Fuller-Becker, that's me, Eva Dean, Peter Kamali, and George Ostro. The music you heard in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. 350 Brooklyn is a local affiliate of 350.org, a worldwide grassroots climate organization. Join us in finding solutions to counter climate change.